Dave Brubeck and Iola Brubeck worked together on a number of projects, and this one, La Fiesta de la Posada, a Christmas choral pageant. That's one of the better known works, a pageant piece to mark Advent and Christmas. Dave and Iola's son, Chris Brubeck, has just sent out a newsletter to coincide with Lent and Easter, reminding those who know and love the jazz created by Dave Brubeck over the years about the sizable collection that he alone and with Iola composed over the years that were sacred works. Reverend Bill Carter, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Clark Summit, is a jazz pianist and band leader and someone who knew Dave Brubeck over the years. He is very interested in Brubeck's sacred music and in anticipation of the 100th anniversary of Dave Brubeck's birth, December 6, 2020, we had a chance to speak with Bill Carter about his experience with Dave Brubeck and with Brubeck's music. We were personal friends, and when I was 13, his uh, music set me on my tail and set my life in a different direction. My grandmother had slipped me a paper bag with a couple of LPs, Brubeck Quartet Live at Newport with J.J. Johnson and Kai Winding, and the other one was Dave Diggs Disney. And uh, I was a fledgling pianist, and at the time uh, was struggling to keep up with my lessons and my teacher. Uh, my mother would set the kitchen timer to say, play for 30 minutes and then you can stop. And so it was externally imposed. I heard Brubeck and I thought, my goodness, they're having fun while they're creating this, whatever this is. And uh, pretty soon it shifted from being externally imposed to internally driven, which is the way all art should if it's going to take root. And my mother kept setting the 30-minute timer to tell me when to stop. But I never dreamed I would meet Dave. And in 1998, ended up in a series of events to spend some time with him. I had the opportunity to uh, play some duets with him on a couple of Baldwin pianos side-by-side in his home in Connecticut. And in one historic WVIA moment, I directed Chris Norton on how to get to Mr. Brubeck's house instructing him when to stop at a florist shop to pick up a bouquet to win over Iola Brubeck, Mrs. Brubeck, and uh, it made for a very, very wonderful day and a Christmas recording with Hank O'Neill. Christmas music, the jazz feeling. That's it. I was in the room when that was recorded. Those are very special moments because we see the artists at home, literally Mm -hmm. at home. You were able to pursue your interest in his music, not just as someone who can sit at the keyboard and take a tune that he's composed and improvise and play with his ensemble, but you were interested in him as a composer. As a composer and as a person, too. Uh, it struck me maybe three months or so out of the blue from after the first time we met how fortunate I was to spend some time with him three hours one afternoon in his home, having lunch. He had forgotten I was coming. Iola pulled some food out of the uh, refrigerator, and we sat and had a great conversation. But how, how beneficial it was to kind of get through all the security 
trappings and such. I didn't have to go through a manager. Uh, there was just direct contact by some serendipity of grace. And I would venture from the very first moment we spent time together, we clicked. You know, some people, you resonate with their spirit, you kind of get them. And I, I really understood, uh, I think, how the way his mind worked. I found him not only to be a very humble man, humble enough that early in his career, as Philip Clark points out, fantasy records took advantage of him economically which then created the kind of circles of protection managers and such that I somehow evaded. But I found him also a grateful man, a thankful man. He was hardworking. He was fortuitous in many, many ways. But I I believe that he was as stunned by his success as anyone, and that was part of the key to his humility. He would never be described as arrogant, or boastful, or someone who would walk into a room and everyone would have to do it, obey a sense. He was never like that. He would kind of slip into the side of the wings of the theater and stand there quietly, and then someone would notice him and then kind of begin all the perfunctory hellos and, oh, Mr. Brubeck, blah, blah, blah. I don't think he ever went for the adulation. And yet, at his memorial service, five months or so after he passed, even then, he filled the Cathedral of St. John the Divine with 2,500 of his closest friends. You know, Tony Bennett did a walk-on. Chick Corea showed up to play a solo. Paul Winter was there along with uh, John Faddis, the trumpeter. Uh, it, was a, uh, it was a wonderful concert of sorts, but all in honor of this tremendous human being. And I think you've told us, Bill, that he was in school in California— Well, he was the third son of three sons of the most, as he described, the most unlikely marriage ever between a cattle rancher and a concert pianist. And the first two sons, first two brothers, went into music professionally. And Pete Brubeck, Dave's father, was convinced that he was going to go into the family business, be a rancher, be out on the range with him. And and what he really needed as as the ranch manager was a veterinarian. So Dave was going to study veterinarian sciences, but he kept slipping across the quad his first semester in um, College of the Pacific and sneaking over to the piano conservatory. And finally, the zoology professor said, Brubeck, you belong over there. And there it went until his senior year after studying and writing counterpoint and composition and emulating his favorite composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, he had to take a piano repertory class his senior semester, second semester, and they discovered he couldn't read a note. He could hear it, he could play it, he could recreate it, but there was uh, some issue between seeing the dots on the page and translating them. And it wasn't merely playing by ear. He was, he was wiser than that, more intuitive than that. I think there was an eye situation, a, a visual situation. And... The dean called him in and said, you are a disgrace. And he said, well, all I want to do is just play jazz. Well, but this is a conservatory. You're here to learn how to teach. I don't want to teach. I just want to play jazz. So based on that conversation and the testimony of his counterpoint professor and his harmony professor and others, he was allowed to graduate under the proviso that he never teach music. Later on, of course, College of the Pacific, now University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, 
gave him an honorary doctorate, and I'm not sure if it came before or after the Lifetime Grammy Award. You mentioned counterpoint and Bach and harmonies. Tell us about what we hear. We know he made a sensation with Time Out, Take mm-hmm. Five, mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. What was going on with him and where did that come from? Well, he had a deep reservoir of creativity that he learned how to, to tap. He loved to tinker. And one of the family stories is that his mother decreed as a pianist that no music would be allowed in the home unless they made it themselves. She was dead set against the radio. This is, of course, long before television. And Dave somehow got a kit, like one of those Heath kits, and made a crystal set radio, which he hid under his bed, and his mother discovered one day. But by that point, he had been listening to a lot of the early jazz that was coming over the hills from San Francisco. And uh, that kind of sense of creative irreverence was always part of his personality. There was a twinkle in his eye. He, he, would, he would tinker with things. He would try things out. One of the revelations that uh, Philip Clark points out, that, and it was also pointed out in a recent book by Stephen Christ, is that the Time Out album, which was questionable for Columbia uh, Records and their promotional people. They didn't think an album like that would ever sell. You couldn't dance to 9-4 and such. But what was curious to me to discover in Clark's biography is that Take 5, probably the best-selling jazz single of all time, you still hear it in elevators and grocery stores, took at least three different days to get the first actual usable performance. It was, uh, they kept goofing it up. And as a musician, I can testify how true that still is. There's something about it, no matter how much we think we've got the groove internalized, it it just, it's not, it's angular. It, It doesn't kind of land where you expect it to. And, you know, Clark accounts from digging deeply into the archives, that uh, Brubeck and his colleagues really had to work at that tune. Of course, three years later, when they're playing in Carnegie Hall, there's no sign of any kind of slippage whatsoever. They were playing an 11-4 and, of course, 9-8. Turk, as well as 5-4 and others. But Brubeck, it comes out of his sense of experimentation, his creativity, and kind of blended together with some desire for risk. Now, he also did works that were spiritual in nature? Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of his nephews died of a brain tumor in the early 60s, and as a way of uh, offering a gift to console his brother and the family, he did a choral setting of Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled, Believe in God, Believe Also in Me, from the 14th chapter of John. And it was extremely moving. And at that point, 
he was starting to tire of, of world travel, and yet it was extremely lucrative. They were like the best-selling jazz group. And he decided maybe he needed to write more choral music, and some invitations came so that when the famous Dave Brubeck Quartet concluded at Christmas time in 1967, he had already pretty much uh, written and begun to arrange a large-scale work called Lights in the Wilderness. Uh, and the centerpiece is that quotation from the words of Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled. That was the first of uh, 13 or 14 or so uh, major oratorios, each lasting an hour, Good many of them. He wrote a mass. He wrote uh, special incidental music for the first papal mass in 1987 in America, in Candlestick Park. He had a, a lot of interest in Oh, let's see, John Steinbeck wrote a piece with Steinbeck in mind with um, Langston Hughes. And um, the photographer of Yosemite and others, the black and white photographer, Ansel Adams. He had a Ansel Adams America. He wrote that piece, which was pretty much finished off by his son, Chris. One of the disappointments of Clark's book is for a 500-page book, maybe four pages are given to all that choral work. And it, the last uh, 20 years of Brubeck's life are skimmed through rather quickly. As with many, he has focused largely on the classic quartet, which, again, concluded in 1967. And they've thrived until 2012. You have an interest in that body of work, and you went into the archives. I did. I did. Three or four years ago, uh, we spent a week digging around the basement of the Library of College of the Pacific. And uh, the archives now are in the process of moving to Dave's hometown in Connecticut and the local library. I'm interested in exploring that again, but, you know, there are hundreds of linear feet of materials. You know, the Charles Kuralt interview after what he called the Pope Show, the 87 Mass. There are manuscripts. There was a lead sheet of his tune in your own sweet way with a hand signed thank you from miles davis uh i mean all you know in my hands and photographed on my ipad and uh just an extraordinary body of work what did you zero in on well i was zeroing in on the religious music um I, that has been an interest for 20 years and i've i've written on that and will write some more on that but uh, what really fascinated me, and sometimes you begin a research project and you back into something else, is how he could begin composing that music while his world-famous quartet was breaking up. And what were the dynamics of that? Um, turns out one of the musicians, who I won't name, had pretty much fallen inside a scotch bottle and couldn't get out, wasn't showing up for gigs. And as one musician said, you know, we have been together so long that we've run out of things to say to one another. And this is a band that toured relentlessly for years and years and years. The notion of jazz and spirituality has been a long-standing interest of yours. This has been an interest also with, uh, for instance, the religious music of Vince Guaraldi, which we transcribed. Other, other religious pieces that are out there of Billy Taylor and uh, even, been curious, Herbie Hancock once recorded in the 60s when he was still in New York. He recorded a Jewish uh, Sabbath service on CD, on record and now CD. 
so there's, you know, and he's a practicing Buddhist. So, I mean, there's, there's this spiritual affinity that musicians don't often articulate in words, but it's very present in what they play and how they play. And so what then did you choose and what did you work on as a result of your visit to the archives? Well, pretty much it was the launching pad for working on a new book, which I hope to complete sometime next year on jazz and the spiritual life. And uh, we'll be drawing from often misquoted line from an early mystic that says, uh, the spiritual life is what brings you totally alive. The glory of God is the person who is completely alive, St. Irenaeus. And uh, this is not about piety within the walls of a sanctuary. That's just one expression of it. It's the way we orient ourselves to kind of the foundational presence in the whole universe. Uh, How do we respond with gratitude, with a life of justice? In Brubeck's case, and this was fascinating too, I was interested in poking around and finding out more about how he addressed racism. And uh, he, he took it on directly, taking a number of courageous stands. In 1960, the year of my birth, he canceled 21 of 23 concerts in the South because they all insisted that he perform with a white, an all-white band. And he had an African-American bassist. And, and he refused and on principle lost uh, the equivalent in our dollars of about $350,000 in bookings, but that was the way it was. And so that part of his history, I find fascinating as a way of of delving into the long-term pain of racism and what that has done to us as a culture and as a nation. Uh, Brubeck was uh, incredibly fair-minded, Uh, He paid the sidemen equal amounts. He did not distinguish between white and black or anything else. He would often, if his bass player was denied a hotel room in the same place where the others were staying, uh, they would simply go to another hotel room in another town if necessary. And it, it wasn't done with a lot of drama or flash. It was just done because this was the right thing to do. You were a good sport because I asked you if you could give us a sense of the new biography by Philip Clark, Dave Brubeck, A Life in Time, and we've been talking about that. What else did you find in the book that you didn't know? I hadn't been up on all the details of the the music that he had created at College of the Pacific. He got home from the war, World War II, and on the GI Bill, he was able to study at Mills College with uh, Darius Mio and was exploring uniquely 20th century harmonies, what this might do. And Mio liked jazz, at least as much as he knew of it, and encouraged Dave to take the lessons in composition and extend them to jazz. So when you've got atonal you know, European music and Bach in a stew pot with jazz, and it comes out like an atonal fugue or, or some such. Some of those recordings exist. Uh, they're a bit harsh. They're not particularly commercial. But you hear from the early 40s, uh, mid-40s, that Dave was experimenting in octet and writing counterpoint and creating new forms. Thank you. 
Chris Brubeck, son of Dave and Iola Brubeck, has written in a newsletter to coincide with Easter and the Lenten season. The hundreds of jazz concerts I played with my dad, I would witness how he would strive for and often achieve a special place in his extended improvisations, even on a tune like Take Five, where his spirituality was being expressed through his piano playing and music making. That was his goal, to reach that special creative zone where he was beyond thought, but expressing the musical flow of the moment. titled Sermon on the Mount, and it is an instrumental rendering of the atmosphere he created in the original setting of his 1968 oratorio, The Light in the Wilderness, that Reverend Bill Carter spoke of, one of the oratorios created by Dave Brubeck in the course of his career. December 6, 2020 marked the 100th anniversary of the birth of Dave Brubeck, and Reverend Bill Carter has talked with us recently about Dave Brubeck, his memories of knowing him as a friend, and also of the music that is not often heard or often played, and that is the sacred music. And as we suggested, his son, Dave Brubeck's son, Chris Brubeck, was thoughtful and considering the Easter and Lenten seasons, and sent a newsletter suggesting that people pay attention in these seasons to the music that Dave and Iola Brubeck created, the oratorios among the pieces, and this Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) 